Turn on the recorder. There we go. Alrighty. Good morning, church. Boy, howdy. What a spot we find ourselves in. It's been a couple months since I spoke last, or three months almost now, but it's been almost an entire year since we were last able to meet in here regularly. How God has brought us through and how faithful he has been. Yeah, amen? Alrighty. So today's message, we'll be finishing up chapter 22 of Acts, starting up in verse 17. And Lord just felt like Lord just led me to go all the way through the end. So we'll go reading through verses 17 through 30. Okay. I know you just sat down, but hey, it's been a while since we were able to stand for the word of the Lord in here. So why don't we just go back to what we used to do. So go ahead and stand when you get to Acts chapter 22. We'll start in verse 17. And when everyone's standing, we'll begin. Okay. Alrighty then. So today we start up in verse 17. Paul's in the middle of his dissertation, and we'll see how it ends. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, then I was in a trance, and I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And he, then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And they listened to him until that word. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then, as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and so that, said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. The commander answered, With a large sum I obtained this citizenship. And then Paul said, But I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were to, about to examine him withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Let's go ahead and join me with prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day that we can come and gather and worship and learn from your word and be replenished by your spirit, Lord. Pray, Lord, that as we enter into your, this time that you would just be in the midst of our fellowship, Lord, that You'd be in the, you'd, as we love, we'd love you with our hearts, souls, mind, and strength, Lord. That you would just, you just be in the midst of it, and we would glorify it, be glorified in all that we think, say, and do, Lord. Pray that you'd plant the seed of your word in our hearts. It'd be watered by your Spirit, and it would produce, a, produce a, a crop tenfold for you, Lord. That it would be just a bountiful harvest for your kingdom. I pray all these things, Lord, in your name, Amen. May be seated. So my title for today's message is called Trials Past, Present, 
and future. So just looking at where Paul has been as a believer, now he's going to be give a he's been giving a quick test, a quick uh, synopsis of his te- of his testimony, his his path as a Christian. Now he's going to, in the midst of a present trial, and then we'll see from going on from here, he's going to be in I'd say trial after trial, and along as he as we get to the end of Acts, and we'll see just how God speaks through and uses Paul along that way. I have several main points, like the first one that I will cover, looking at how God will call us to go places and do things that may defy our expectations. I mean, we've heard it a thousand times, but it doesn't make it any less true to hear it again. I mean, I always think that, I think back to the old saying that man plans and God laughs. Because we have like a bizarro comic from the Sunday strip back in the day, where an angel is about to meet and speak to God, and another angel says, "You have to wait for him. He's he's watching his favorite comedy channel. Like out on TV, the Weather Channel. <laughs> like okay, what happened today? <laughs> oh yes. So, but yeah. So anyway, looking at how they're going on serious now, when people, when God calls us into the most trying of circumstances, people are like God, why are you taking me here? He says, "Why? Because this is my plan for you, and you asked me to take me where you where I wanted you to go." <laughs> I mean, going way back to, we'll look at, let's look back, like a quick synopsis, look at the deities of Jesus. They said, quote, when, God's first, when Jesus first came to earth, they were expecting a warrior king and got a suffering prophet. And in his second coming, the world's going to expect a suffering prophet, but they'll get the warrior king. So God will always find a way to defy our expectations, even as his followers. And I'd say that's just God being God, and amen for that. My second main point is going to look at how our nature as Christians should not only endure pressure, but also shine brighter because of it. Yeah. Reminds me of going back to the book of Revelation, chapter two, and talks about the Church of Smyrna. If you follow the, if you look at the interpretation of that, those seven letters being an eschatological timeline, that's when that was the Church of Smyrna was when the, we had the persecuting Caesars from Nero to Diocletian, and for every Christian. Like there was, yes, it was horrendous persecution. They were dying in horrific ways. But for every Christian who died, dozens more came to the faith to the point where at the end, after Diocletian, Constantine gave Christianity legal protection. And a few emperors later, it became the official religion of Rome. So God actually used that persecution to expand his church. And we've seen it all the way from the book of Acts. When everyone by the apostles was scattered, the church started was scattered like seed and then it started producing fruit for the kingdom. In a much wider area, and so looking at uh, the, looking also like how our individual not only how the church is being spread but our own individual character. It's like being the, the, the image is being used being refined in fire, and I'll go in deeper into that as we go into the message. But looking at how that like, God is refining us, how we are being in a sense being purified as believers until God glorifies us in the end. And my third main point is another interesting one. It's actually, my, it was, as I was studying and preparing this message, it was the second one that came to me, but the third point, rather interesting, says trials will end only when God's purpose for them is completed. Just let that sink in. So think about when people are going through trial, they're like, God, get me out of this. But God says, I'm not done with you yet. Like, for example, like, think about when, when Jesus and his disciples were going through the storm, it's a trial, a trial for them. They think their lives are in danger, and then Jesus only... Calms the, he only calms the sea when they ask him for it because like, that's when he says now, now they're ready to learn the lesson. And, says, 
and so that's when, and Jesus says one word and boom, the storm's gone. But the disciple, he had, he was waiting for the right moment until the disciples were absolutely ready, until they were at the proper point, and then the trial ended. So interesting to see that, see how, how maybe people are looking at Paul and saying, like, how come you had to go through all these trials after trial after trial? And says, well, God's purpose isn't, for Paul isn't done yet. He, want, he, he told Paul at the beginning he was going to go through many trials, and until God's purpose for Paul is completed, those trials aren't going to stop. So then... Okay, so then let's take a look back at starting up in verse 17. Well, but first before we, got, before we go to that, we'll go to a little context for the message. So remember, this is the, like looking back at what we've seen in the previous chapters, this has been the end of Paul's third missionary journey. First one took him through Cyprus and then parts of Anatolia, which is now Turkey. His second missionary journey took him even further. He went through, through first through, through Turkey and then into Greece and then circling back down to Jerusalem and back to Antioch. And his third missionary journey took him on a little bit of a circuitous, circuitous path. He was actually going through the churches he planted before. He was encouraging and strengthening the churches because he wasn't going to see them again. God was going to take him elsewhere for the, and he wasn't going to come back. So now as he's come from, he started off from Antioch. He circled through Greece. Whoop, other way. So he circled through Greece, then came back along the same route, then sailed down to Jerusalem to deliver this offering from the Gentile churches to help support the Jerusalem church. And then in Jerusalem, he gets falsely accused, and he ends up being arrested by Rome. Then we see, like, not only is that, it's actually interesting, if you look at it, the, the Romans not, did not, didn't just arrest him, they actually rescued him. If you look in the previous verse, it says they were, that the people were trying, that the mob was trying to, they were beating Paul, they were trying to kill him, and the Romans ended up pulling him out and giving him security protection. So now it does. He, then, as he is related to his, he's relating his account to the people. He is now delivering his, and since he's giving not only his testimony, he's kind of delivering a sermon to his persecutors, and we'll see how that's going. How, now we'll see how that kind of comes to a close. So, starting up in verse three of the chapter, we saw that we saw Paul was giving a quick summary of his testimony. He was relating his past trials as a believer. In the sense we saw, like going back to chapters eight and nine, Paul had been one of the greatest persecutors of Rome, of the church, the way as it was called then, and he is actually now he's gone a full one eighty as only God can work. He's gone from persecutor to preacher. He's become the great one of the greatest missionaries of all time. So he gives okay that uh, the thing is that even though God has like God addresses in verse seventeen says now as I happened. I returned to Jerusalem. I was praying in the temple. This is after he's come back from Antioch, from, after he was left down in the basket and returned to Jerusalem. I was praying in the temple. I was in a trance, and I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. And it's not that interesting that Paul was, like, think about it, if, if anyone was qualified to, to preach to the Jews, it would seem that Paul was the one. I mean, he was a, a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was a student, one of the greatest rabbis of his day. He knew the word forwards and backwards, and yet God says, they won't accept your testimony. Why not? Because of who Paul was. Like, in a sense, yes, he was. It's kind of, I kind of think back to what, what we see with, with the story of the other apostles. Like the, in a sense, like Paul is a sort of a 13th apostle. We saw Judas come in and out. We saw Matthias replace him in Acts chapter 1. So there's the 12, and then there's Paul. 
So he's of the, the twelve apostles. He's the only, of the thirteen apostles. Technically, he's the only one who didn't know Jesus or come to follow him during his time on earth. So his testimony is a bit different, and also because the thing about the other guys, these are men who like they were carpenters. They were or they, they were like tax collectors, zealots, fishermen. Paul came from a much different background, and more than that, he used to be a persecutor. He's the only one of the apostles who can say, I used to try and hurt the way that I'm now following. And that kind of testimony, well, in a sense, they say that your, your past actions come back to bite you. Well, Paul is, Paul is literally filling that. God said, they will not accept your testimony because you used to be the persecutor in this region, remember? Since that, in a sense, and also think back to uh, Luke chapter 4. When Jesus comes back comes out of the wilderness and returns to Nazareth, and he faces this instance that people do not accept Jesus as for his testimony or who he is, because they all they see is the guy they knew. They say, quote, isn't this Jesus? Isn't he the carpenter's son? How did he get to be so high and mighty? How did he look at all these things? They didn't see him as anything but the boy who grew up in Nazareth. And the same thing is happening here. Paul, even though he was a changed man, all people would see when they saw him in Jerusalem would be Saul of Tarsus, the former persecutor. And so God, is, God says, they won't accept your testimony here, Paul, because of what happened to you in chapters 8 and 9. But there, that just means that God's saying, you can't, it's not, God's not saying you can't share. Okay, thank you. Nice, good luck in your next jump, Knievel. So, sorry for the interruption. So, anyway, so God's not saying to Paul, you can't share. He's just saying you can't share here. And it makes me back to the old, the old saying that God never closes one door without opening another. So even though God, Paul might be more qualified to speak to the Jews, God is going to say, God says, they won't accept you because of who you were, but I will send you to people who will accept your testimony. He's going to send them to the Gentiles and the Jewish communities spread in the diaspora. And that's where they will, they will be able to accept Paul for who he is and not who he was. And that's his instructions. But that uh, scene going down, that's where he goes through verses 20, to verse 21, says, He said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. So in that sense that Paul has come full circle, that now he is, the, the way he used to persecute, he is now following. He is not, instead of the, he is now the preacher, and he's going to be sent an ironic, like I said, an ironic twist that God's going to send the man educated by the Jews to speak to the Gentiles. And but thank God he did, because if he hadn't, none of us would probably be here. And yet, that is the one point, that's that last point of contention, that will be a, a piece of contention for the Jews that are listening to him. It says in verse 22, And they listened to him until this word... And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Well, in fa- that's a fancy way of saying it, but basically they're saying to Paul, <laughs> Yeah, they want, they want to see him dead. Why? Well, in sense, I think it's like we saw, with, we saw this somewhat in the church in Acts 15, and now we're seeing it with the larger Jewish community. They refused to accept the Gentiles as fellow believers. They basically say, we saw this, the whole church debate we saw in Acts 15. We saw earlier in chapter, I think it was chapter 21. We saw that where, the, where we saw James talking about the, the, how the church addressed the Gentiles. It's actually interesting. There are like four different positions of looking at how, how much the, or how little the Jewish culture should be in the church. Let's see if I go this way on the far right. 
we see the Judaizers who said, you want to be a Christian? You got to be a Jew, 100%. Anything less is unacceptable. Then, coming into a slightly more a slightly conservative stance, we saw James's view in chapter 21, talking about how they should refrain from sexual morality, not eat things strangled, strangled or not eat things sacrificed to idols. Basically, live like Gentiles who are living among the Jews. Then, on the more slightly more liberal position, or slightly more removed, we see Paul talking about let Jews be Jews and let Gentiles be Gentiles. If you're a Jew before, continue being a Jew if, if you want to do that. If you're a Gentile, then continue being a Gentile, but be like be a Christian. And then beyond that, we see where I talked about this in college. It's where where the Apostle John or his disciples and Stephen might have stood, where says, "Quote: The Lord does not live in man-made houses." Where since quote the Jewish Jewish culture, it had its place and does no longer it does no, no longer has to be followed by anyone in a sense. But these Judy, but the crowd here is, is going with this with these far conservative point of view saying quote if you're a gentile and you want to be a believer you have to be a jew other than that get the heck out of here and now that they hear paul trying to say that he's been sent by god to the gentiles and that the quote intent they know the way paul's teaching or at least they have a, a certain perception of the way he's teaching and they said that's it paul no more words from you ever and but even since them even more I think was not the fact that just God was sending him to the Gentiles, but remember it says in verse 17, God told him this, where? In the temple, the most sacred building, the most sacred location in all Judaism, and Paul's saying God told him here to go to the Gentiles? Oh, you are a dead man! At least that's what they're thinking. It's that sense of that they're, not only are they in sense that he's going to the Gentiles to say he's in sense that they're, they're in sense their pride and their own self righteousness is pricked by this. Like this, like how dare you? Because remember, it says the Jews viewed the Gentiles and their prayers. They viewed them as dogs. And remember, it's not talking about the pure, the thoroughbreds. They're talking thinking like the the mutt on the street, the dirty, scroungy little ugh, that thing. That's how they viewed the Gentiles. And and think about would you let a dog like that in your house? No, so they said, "What? Well, why are they letting it? Why let a Gentile into a Jewish home?" And they say, even though they had a court of the Gentiles in the temple, think about it, it was for the most far removed from the temple as it could possibly be, and now Paul seems to be saying that God wants them us to be equals to them. That was completely unacceptable, and that's why they're getting ready. Well, in a sense, like we've seen the past year, two thousand twenty, they're getting ready to riot. Says so they're. It says in verse 23, they're crying out, they're tearing off their clothes, throwing dust in the air. And keep in mind, they're not, they're not being indecent about this. It's just basically kind of like, uh, you ever see like those old, old, old videos or old school practices where like you take off your, you're getting a fight, you take off your coat, you take off your outer shirt, you're there, you basically just with enough to be decent, but nothing that's going to weigh you down. That's what they're doing. They're basically taking off everything that will encumber their movement. They're getting ready for a fight. They said, quote, basically in sense, it's, very much like we've seen with the riots of 2020, it's a, basically it's an emotional outburst that's being followed by unrestrained actions. The riot is, they're going to make chaos. They don't want, say, quote, if, if they, we couldn't get Paul at first, and now if we can't get him, we'll make sure he has no peace, and we'll make sure the Romans have no peace if they're protecting him. And that's why we see, like, that's, we see, da, 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 okay. 
So that's where you see that's going to be, a, they're, they're getting ready to riot, and then that's why the Roman commander says, whoa, this is getting a little more out of hand than I thought. I mean, before they thought they were, thought it was things were going to be okay. They were rioting, they were trying to kill this guy, then he, they calmed down, and now it's like the, like the heat just turned on to like double times or exponentially more, more intense. It's like, okay, this is going to be trouble. I think I need to know what's going on here. A little information, please. And that's why we see in verse 20, like verse 24, see the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he would know, he, that he should, so that he would not know why they shouted so against him. Now, keep in mind, like, how many times have you heard that word scourging? I mean, raise your hand. Who's heard scourging before? Okay. Okay. How, what, is it, what does scourging mean? Yeah, it's a scourge is a, like I used to think they, they called a scourge was like a scorpion. Basically, it's kind of like the, uh, it's not exactly like the whip that was used on Jesus, but it was similar, like a cat of nine tails. Yeah, so basically, scourging means being beaten with a whip. I mean, like back in the, it's not as, as far remote as practice as we think. It's like back in, as far as the 1800s, the British Navy was the most regular punishment for, for a crime at, on ship was being tied up and beaten, like given like something like 20 strokes with a whip. And remember, this is a. This is not. Just, it's not a sense of form of punishment here. It's basically their form of interrogation. It's like the idea with, like, you know, like the the threat of pain is going to clear up any any sense of any chance of you lying. It says, "Quote: if, you, if I offer something that's painful, you're gonna you're gonna wake up and you're not gonna try and formulate lies. You're gonna be you're gonna be scared out of your wits and you'll tell me you'll tell me the truth." Of course, that's somewhat questionable because then we might say, "Well, if they did it under threat of torture, it's not really valid," but. The Romans were just interested in just gaining information, whether it was accurate or not. And they said, quote, remember, so the, uh, the, the reason why they're doing this is not just because there were the writing. It's also because, remember, in chapter 21, it said that in verse, this is in verse 33 or 34, it says, Some of the multitude cried one thing and some cried another. I, so it's, it's a matter of confusion that there's conflicting reports. Ironically, very much like Jesus' trial, where the witnesses would say one thing and then the other thing, and it wasn't clear what they were saying. But then that's where Paul, interestingly, uses a, quite an interesting tactic that shows a very much a reflection of Jesus' character as he's about to be beaten. I mean, this is nothing new for Paul. He's been beaten with, with beaten with. He like goes through another parts of his of his epistles. He goes through a whole record of how he's been beaten with rods, whipped, jailed, spent a time in the deep, like out in the ocean for day and night. So this is nothing new for Paul, but he does this for a very special reason. He says, quote, it's on chapter 22, verse 25, As they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? See, in this time, there was like we saw like the treatment of citizens and non-citizens today. There was, citizens have a special status that non-citizens don't. It's a different treatment before the law, so to speak, because you have certain legal rights that are there. And so, as we've seen before, like when Paul was, like when we went through, was it Philippi or Ephesus? No, it was Philippi, the Philippian jailer. We saw that Paul and Silas were beaten and then put in stocks, and the Roman authorities came the next day. He's like, "Okay, you're free to go." He says, "Excuse me, we're Roman citizens. You have us beaten without a trial and jailed wrongfully." And that's and the Roman officials started shaking in their sandals because 
there was Roman citizens. It was like, if you did this to a Roman citizen, anything you did to them happens to you. So you, so these guys could have been jailed and whipped themselves, and the same thing could happen to the to their commander and his centurions if they did this to Paul. And so he says, "Quote." When the centurion tells the commander, then the commander comes and says, "You a citizen?" Yeah. He says, and the, so the commander himself reveals, "Quote with a large sum of money, I obtained this citizenship." So even the guy who's holding Paul captive at this or who's about to interrogate him isn't even a born Roman. He had he was like a he was a naturalized citizen. He was not a Roman by birth. He had to pay a large he had to pay a large fee for his citizenship. And then Paul says, "I was born a citizen." So either Paul's father had either was either born with a Roman citizenship or he had bought it like this commander did. But either way, that citizenship passed to Paul and he had special protection because of it. And this is where, in a sense, I see Paul as actually protecting his captors. Where he says, kind of like, kind of like Jesus' love, he says, quote, Father, forgive them for not, they not, not, not what they do. And Paul clarified what they were about to do. So you knew that if anything that happened to him, that would happen to these Romans. Says I don't want that to happen to them because that will that will affect how they receive the message, and that might even kill them. You know, that will leave them without hope. And so Jesus and he set that example, and Paul follows that example in in loving his enemies as Jesus commanded. And then following further into the end of the chapter. We're seeing verses 29 and 30, like after the commander has released him from the thongs that were, he released him from the rack, so to speak, and he's just been kept them overnight. It says, the next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded him, commanded the chief priests and all the council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. So just for the sake of location, let's say, like this is in the San Antonio, so Paul, having been kept overnight by the Romans, he would have been in the, what's called the San, An- the San Antonio, the St. Antonio Fortress. So in the temple grounds, so in Jeru- looking at Jerusalem overall, say, like if, say this is Jerusalem here. Up down here, we have the living areas for the upper and lower class. Up here, we have the Temple Mount with the temple itself, and then to the north of, or to north and northwest of that temple is the San Antonio Fortress. So it's that area that the Romans would have held, that's why they were able to respond so quickly to the riot, because they were right on hand to the next door to the temple. And it was, ironically, that same location, that's where Jesus would have been put on trial before Pontius Pilate back in the Gospels. The same place where he would have been scourged 39, like we struck with the, whip, with the lash 39 times, and then from there he had to drag his cross out of Jerusalem. And it's the same place where Paul was about to be, face similar persecution and where he would, be, he would be held overnight until he was ready to face the, ruling, to the, face the council, the high priest. So for a clarification here, like looking at the... So have you, how many have heard the term the Sanhedrin before? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but I just want to make sure that in case anyone's unfamiliar with it. So the Sanhedrin is the Jewish civil and religious authority. So they don't have kings at this point. The kings are following, are the, following the, the, the Edomian dynasty with Herod the Great. They inherited from his father and then it's passed down to his sons at this point. And so they don't have, so that's the Edomians, actually interestingly word, Edomian comes from, the, from Edom. So, so these guys are actually descendants of Esau who are ruling over descendants of Jacob. And they call them Edomian because they were, I think they were, uh, 
well, they say they were forcibly, unwillingly converted to Judaism. So even though they were technically circumcised and all that, they did not follow the, the ways of God, and that's why Herod was so willing to sacrifice a, like, every baby boy two years and younger to save his own throne, because he, was not, he didn't fear God. He only feared the Roman authorities who put him in power. And yet, so that's so with the kings outside, the kings aside, that see the Romans are the ones who are actually the military authority. They're the ones who hold the power of life and death and are able to able to invade Israel and wipe it out if they want, if they things get too, too heated, which they will eventually in the Jewish rebellions. But the Sanhedrin are the ones who are the civil and religious authority for the Jews. So just to just to summarize, this is a mixture of the, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two of the, two of Jesus's main opponents. The Sadducees are the upper class, the priesthood, and the and the Pharisees are going to be the scribes from the middle class. And ironically, Paul is now on trial before the same guys that he used to be. Basically, in a sense, he's, he says, says, "Hi guys, remember me? I used to be one of you." Yeah, because these are his, not only his. They're not only his, his former supporters, they are actually used to be his superiors. Back in chapters 7 and 9 of Acts, they were the ones who had stoned Stephen while Saul was watching their cloaks. It's like I said, the same thing. They took off their outer garments so they wouldn't be encumbered while throwing rocks at Stephen. And Saul was there. And then he's also the one that they gave letters of authority. Basically, he was like a, like a privateer or a sheriff being issued a warrant for the, for the rest of the Christians. And these are the guys who had sent Paul out with that authority. And now he's the one, ironically, on trial before them, as Stephen was. And yet, like I said, this is just like a, the commander says, he wants to know why he's being accused by the Jews. So in a sense, this is just like a, it's not a, this is like a preliminary hearing. It's not a, not a formal trial, so to speak. And what's more, even if it was a trial, the Jews couldn't do anything except make a recommendation. Like I said, the Romans had the power of what, what's called life, the power of life and death. It comes from the, I think, the, the, it's the symbol called a fash. It was like a bundle of sticks with an axe in the middle of it. That's actually where we got the term fascism from. It became in the 20th century. But it, basically, the Romans, I could say that we said in Jesus' trial, in John chapter 18, Pilate says, hey, if, he, if he's one of you and he broke your law, then take him and try him according to your laws. They said, quote, we don't have the authority to condemn someone to death because Rome had taken that power away. And so Paul is going to be on trial before these guys, but they're not going to be able to do anything but basically send him on to the next authority because they don't have that kind of power. So it's interesting seeing from, from this from the end of this chapter, this, this trial before the Sanhedrin is going to be, we'll see the rest of the, the book unfold. But before this time, we've seen it focus on the larger church and on the missionary journeys. Now it's going to focus entirely on Paul's journey to Rome. From chapters 23 to 28, we'll see him traveling from place to place, whether it's within Israel or overseas. It'll be, the rest of the chapter is going to focus entirely on what some people refer to as Paul's fourth missionary journey. Because even though he's going to be on trial and going to house arrest, he is basically doing what God told him he was going to do. It's a fulfillment of his ministry. As you see, like God was speaking to Ananias in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, when he's giving him the vision of saying, go to, go to, Saul, go to Saul, and to, to, after Paul has he's been blinded, he says, I've shown him a vision that you're going to come and pray over him, and he'll receive his sight again. And Ananias is quickened in his sandal, saying, well, Lord, this is the same guy who was, who was, killed, who was how much, doing so much harm to, the people, to your people, and he says, he's been authority from the high priest, he says, in verse 15, but the Lord said to him, 
Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And so we're seeing here, like after he's endured scourgings and beatings and and, and, and uh, rejection by the Jews, that God is now going to continue using these trials to see Saul, to let Paul fulfill his purpose as a Christian. And ironically, so they say, quote, that God never, like I say, God never closes one door without opening another, and God will always lead you in the path that he wants you to go. And the, and the cool part is that Saul, remember that Paul, like any of us, is not alone in this. He's going to be traveling with Luke and other companions, but always with God on his side. It brings me back to mind to the, an old, the old story that I heard as a child about the footprints in the sand, about how God said, quote, in the lowest times of your life, and you see, like we're walking along, you see only one set of footprints, you think I've abandoned you. Nope, that's when I was carrying you. And so that God, that even when it's too much for Paul to carry, God will always bring him through it. And what I'm going to bring back to that day of the imagery that says God, going back to my third point, that trials only end when God's purpose for them is completed. Reminds me of another story I heard as a child. This one I read in a book my mom gave me about how this young man is so angry about how basically he wants revenge for the way people have treated him as a, as a young man or as a Christian. And his father says to him, ah, remember this, the king's image. He sounds like, what? Well, come on, let's sit down. I'll tell you. So think about it, the process of, think, think about it. Get, look at your pocket. He pulls out a coin says, how do you think that coin got to be that way? He says, well, I suppose somebody made it. You're right. But remember, it was a long process. Yet the metal had to be had to be dug out of the ground. It had to be put to the fire to be melted down and purified of impurities. And even then, it had to go to be had to be hammered and put open and refined through the, through physical pressure. And only at the end of that process is it is it stamped like in the old days with the king's image. It says quote. So yes, God's going to bring you through trials. They built part of life. It says quote. And you're, he's making you into the image of his son, but. You need to be able to endure the pressure and the heat of the process of, that comes with that. Like I said, like God's purifying us, but nobody said that purification process was easy. I mean, let's face it, we're messed up people and God's got a lot of work to do on us. But in the end, that's where we see in the end result with glorification, that's where we'll see ourselves as coins stamped at the king's image, the image of Christ, but God's still working on us. We're still going through the forging and the, refi- and the, and the, the, forging and the hammering process of becoming like Jesus. And that's why the trials continue in our lives, because God's not done with us yet, and until his purpose is completed, the trials continue, and we can take heart that he's with us every step of the way. Join me in prayer, please. Lord, just thank you for this time that we can come together for the preaching of your word, Lord. Pray that as we, as we absorb it and as we go out from this place, Lord, that you would continue to work in each and every one of us, that... You would, that we continue to be led down the path that will lead us into heaven, Lord. As you lead us along the way, Lord, please, that we, we just be willing sheep that would listen to the voice of our shepherd and follow you every step of the way, Lord. But when the world tries to distract us, to call us to walk away from the path, that, Lord, you would just, that your, your love and that your voice, your word, would just bind our hearts closer to you and that we would continue to follow in your way, Lord. Pray that... Until you, bring, that you'll, until you bring us to the end, that we would be faithful and in, enduring to the end, Lord. That whatever you're calling you place in our life, that you would, we would be willing and supple in your hands, Lord. Like the potter's hands with the clay, that we would just be willing to take on whatever shape and go wherever you call us to, Lord. 
pray, Lord, that we'd be patient and always be looking for your return, Lord. Be looking for you every day until you return. Pray all this in your name. Amen.